Thanks for downloading Looking Glass, a podcast series from the Institute of Physics about what science can learn from other perspectives in society. I'm Angela Saini, a science journalist and author who's interested in how science sits in the world, the politics of it, the funding of it, the biases in it. In this series, I'm hosting discussions about some of the major challenges facing our world, like the climate crisis and big data. I'll be inviting experts from different disciplines, including some physicists, to share their work to see what we can learn as we look to the future. In this episode, we're looking at healthcare and inequality. The pandemic has forced many of us to think about this issue in a new light. It's laid bare just how unfairly patients may be treated depending on where they live and their socioeconomic status. These disparities are forcing questions about how societies can make healthcare fairer and more equitable, especially in the face of future pandemics. My guests today are Ivan Beckley and Professor Kevin McGuigan. Ivan is a final year medical student at University College London studying global health policy. He's the founder of Severa, a clinical startup that allows GPs to follow up with patients remotely. Kevin is Professor of Medical Physics at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. He directs a research group that develops solar-based technologies to make drinking water safer to drink. Both Kevin and Ivan's work are about improving health outcomes for those who are sometimes overlooked. In Kevin's case, it's about creating clean water solutions for people in low-income countries. And in Ivan's case, it's as an entrepreneur looking at how to improve patient care when resources are limited. So I started by asking Ivan, at what point in his training did he realise there was a problem with health inequality? Well, for me, I think inequalities of healthcare has been very kind of attuned to me because when you dig deep into those kind of areas of medicine, you begin to understand that the delivery of healthcare is not the same everywhere. And hence the outcomes are very different. And so you also recognize that in those each scenarios, there are also differences in how we treat different people with different races and backgrounds. And that in turn has its own impact. And so I remember vividly there was there's this map on the tube where um, they basically run a life expectancy um, across that tube map. And they basically see as you go across the line, the decrease in life expectancy across the, the tube line. And I, I will always remember that as we're in the healthcare system today, which is which is um, presented as modern and cutting edge, and yet across a single tube line on the underground, we have different life expectancies. And I think a lot of people imagine, especially here in the UK, where we have a national health service, it's all free at the point of use, that um, the inequalities must be minimal compared to other countries where we, they don't have that kind of system. Why do you think it's still so stark? I think a lot has to be less with the delivery of healthcare uh, and more to the social determinants of health. So the way in which the environment allows or disallows people to be healthy. But saying that, even in delivery of healthcare, you know, there is, despite you, you know, there is enough research um, that actually the way we deliver healthcare is not what it should be for everyone. So, for example, 
um, we know um, black women are five times more likely to suffer a mortality event from pregnancy, even here in the UK. And so that is partly because of how we treat women of the you know black community. And I think the problem is that there isn't a just silver bullet. We need to, as a system, on more, all levels of both junior doctors, consultants, politicians, be aware of you know every layer is important in how we tackle these inequalities. Kevin, I just want to bring you in here because you work globally in places like Africa and Asia. And of course, globally, in terms of health inequalities, we see such so much more glaring problems. The inequality is so much starker. Can you describe how stark it is? In sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Southeast Asia, okay, you have lack of access to healthcare. Well, you take that for granted in many cases, but there are so many other factors that feed into the health inequality that you perhaps haven't considered before. Things like the diet as a child, if you're undernourished while you're under the age of five, you lose growth that you never regain. You will be under height for the rest of your life. Um, levels of education, most children in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in the rural areas, they'll never get any more than than primary school education. And education is a huge factor in, in breaking the, the cycle of poverty. And it's the poverty that leads into the healthcare inequality. So from that level, those factors, you also find those here in, in, in high income environments, but it's so much worse in, in Africa. My first exposure to Africa was back in the 90s where I was doing projects with the Maasai in southern Kenya, and they're a nomadic uh, community. They have monthly incomes of left, less than maybe $50. So any health problem there, if it's not easily resolvable, what we would consider to be quite a minor issue can lead to serious complications. To us, for example, diarrhea is an inconvenience. But for the very young and the very old in most of sub-Saharan Africa, diarrhea and dysentery can be a life-threatening illness. So that, that was where I first started to see the differences between the environment within which I'd grown up compared to Africa. Like I knew Africa, there were poor parts in Africa, but as a physicist working away in my lab, I hadn't really considered those until I was dragged out into the field and confronted with it face to face. And, it, and that's when it comes into stark reality. Well, I can imagine that was quite a turning point for you, Kevin. And Ivan, then coming to you, what do you think that societies, even societies like the UK, need to look at in order to tackle this, this bigger problem of health inequality? I'm increasingly aware there is only so much any clinician, any doctor can do to impact the health of the patients they look after. Right. Um, to really, if, if you really looked at it, where is the most biggest opportunity to transform people's health, um, especially and also reduce the health inequality gap? I think it's about engaging people um, from early. And so we as society need to recognise that health is not just something that doctors deal with. It's something that all of society impacts. And so when we're delivering policies, when we are delivering um, changes to the benefit system, 
all of those have downstream knock-on effects to health outcomes. And healthy is 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 a is a complex term because it can mean so many things to so many different people. But in so many regards, it's about helping people to 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 live in the way that they want to and to provide for the people around them in the way that they hope to. I think the thing I want to get to the heart of is that I, I think a lot of people, when they look at ethnic minority or racial disparities in health, imagine that there are factors outside society and the environment, for example, genetics or some, you know, something viscerally different about different people's bodies. Why is that not the right way to be thinking about these things? I'm always surprised about how much we forget our environment and the structures of that environment impacts people's healthcare more than our genetics or on equal levels to our genetics. And I think that that is what is being played out in, you know, the COVID pandemic and the disparity of, you know, individuals from the ethnic minority community who have been disproportionately affected. Um, you know, maternal mortality linked to black women, mental health outcomes, um, with black men um, and the high levels of incarceration, you know, linked to those um, individuals. So I, I feel like it's there is so much that society has to play that we almost forget or neglect, partly because it's complex um, and, you know, there isn't just one solution. With, with health, we can say, oh, it's your genetics. And so, you know, what we're going to do is give you this other drug or this medication. So that's in some regards, easier than dealing with the very complex, tangled, you know, history of things that we need to unpack and therefore re-engineer. Kevin, what made you want to work in this area? Because I imagine one of the issues that you must face is cultural differences, that even if you come up with an idea that to you feels rational and useful, if it doesn't fit in with cultural practices of how people live in the real world, then it's never going to work. That you've hit the nail on the head. It's the, the single biggest problem is it's not the science. The science is the easy part. It's trying to help communities realize that there is a problem and that the, the technology can help them address that problem. Because in many parts of the world, the uh, parents would view childhood diarrhea in the same way that we might view a childhood cough. You know, it's just something that they get. Uh, why do you need to to, to resolve that? Um, and cultural differences have led to different rates of success in different countries. With with the Maasai, we were very successful because they had a, a very hierarchical community. If the head of the village said, we're going to do this, well, then it, that's what everybody would do. In South Africa, it was much different because there they've got a, a history of of independent uh community leadership so they're much much less likely to take advice from people higher up the, the 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 command structure and they'll just make the decisions for themselves which is absolutely their right don't get me wrong and in other countries it wouldn't work for reasons of local superstitions they were worried that maybe bottles left out in the sun could be interfered with by uh, by neighbors and by interfered with they would they would worry about maybe a, a curse being put on the bottles. So to a certain extent, the scientist in me has to park my 
scientific observations, it's very easy to say, look, that is just crazy. Why are they doing that? But these are very real problems as, as perceived by the people who could benefit from the technology. So you have to address them. I mean, this is an issue I think we see all over the world is a distrust of authority figures or and especially doctors. I think sometimes for very good reason, because there has been throughout medical history exploitation of certain communities. We only have to look at, for example, the Tuskegee experiment in the US in which black American men were deliberately exposed to syphilis when they could have been treated. Um, so that kind of distrust is valid, I think, for many people. Ivan, I just want to go to you to ask, how do you get communities to engage with health advice and health information and use medical services in the way that you would want them to? You know, it's a difficult one <laughs> in so many words, because I think people have different agendas often, especially when it comes to any initiatives or programs of prevention um, or screening or, or even you know, just general well-being. Um, engagement in programs as such can be can be difficult because, you know, often they are, you know, you have a long-term perspective and they're not immediate in their, in their impact. So, you know, most of my time is spent kind of working with patients to kind of help manage long-term conditions in terms of whether it's in the hospital, that they're coming for another event and then, you know, you often provide some advice or resources for them to continue to kind of manage their conditions well. Uh, in my experiences in g general practice, that's often the mainstay of what GPs do is try to to help people engage in the right programs or kind of right initiatives to help manage their health. But it's very hard to do. Um, a lot of the work that I've been trying to do um, with with our kind of small startup is more to think about. How do we create an environment which is easier for people to engage in over a long period of time? Yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking back to a special issue of the British Medical Journal, which came out in February this year, February 2020, looking at racism in medicine. And what that issue found was that it wasn't just patients being discriminated against, it's also doctors, that they also face racism at work. And I think for some... That was a bit of a wake-up call because I think we imagine the UK at least to be a quite fair society and the NHS in particular, which has a high number of ethnic minority staff, to be very fair. But in your experience, is you know how fair is it really? How fair is it really? <laughs> I think for me, I, I see a plethora of um, amazing doctors from different backgrounds. But then I also see there are a few who make progress over time who you know get to consultant level who are medical directors chief medical directors of large institutions who, that deliver healthcare in our system and I don't think it's a lack of experience I don't think it's a lack of individuals I think it's just a lack of recognition that the system is set up to make certain individuals more successful than others and so to answer your question directly I think more could be done to allow people of minorities who are in the system to progress, take on more leadership roles, be in control of my managerial positions. Because I think when people are, are empowered, that's when we see change across the whole system. So Kevin, in your experience then, um, and you've, you've been working in this area for a long time, have you seen these kind of dynamics of bias play out? 
a lot of it could be down to not deliberate bias but unconscious bias as well and that plays a huge role and that's why a lot of the the higher education institutions and the medical colleges these days they put a huge emphasis on training in, in unconscious bias and in equality diversity and inclusivity so i hope it's starting to change but i think certainly it was a factor in previous years do you think those imbalances are making the problem of tackling health inequality more difficult. The reason I ask is that we know, um, you know, I have an engineering background myself, and we know that if you have any narrow perspectives feeding into technologies, then it's very easy for those technologies to play out the biases that exist in the real world. And so, Ivan, you're developing these kind of online platforms yourself. Do you recognize that danger? For sure. So I spent a, a good amount of time at DeepMind. So DeepMind is an AI research company that um, is basically has a mission to solve general intelligence, general artificial intelligence, uh, or rather just to solve intelligence, full stop. And one of the things that's very clear from working at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence data science practice was in building these technologies, the decisions we make early will train and impact the decisions that come after and so you have to be mindful before you even start to write any code of who you're trying to deliver and are those people represented in what you're trying to train the system to do. And so we're very mindful at Severa is that if we're going to be involving algorithms or data, a part of care, that we need to be mindful of the biases that we have and therefore only provide the informational data we have or algorithms when we know that it's it's safe to be utilized across populations. And, and you know, that that means that we takes us a longer to go to market. That means it takes us a while to have the impact that we want to have. But for us, this is the most important thing because actually then when it is delivered, we know that it's in a position to add value to not just a few, but to as many people as possible. Kevin, this kind of comes back to what you were talking about earlier about cultural sensitivity when developing technologies because of course no technology sits you know in isolation from the world that it's in and if you have that understanding then it's far easier to get that technology to work yeah it is one of the the things i spend most of my time with Uh, it's trying to to make sure that what we are doing is a solution to the problem that the community have i mean there's no point me driving up to a remote rural community in my pickup truck, my four-wheel drive, and throwing plastic bottles at them and say, look, there you go, it's solved, away away you go, because that just doesn't work. So that's why you have to work with organizations that already have links with those communities. That's, that's how you build the trust, that the motives you have to be there are the right motives. We, we want to help solve the problem of childhood disease uh, of life-threatening illness coming from the 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 contaminated drinking water and once you have the local organizations working with you and reassuring them that that is the case that's half the battle i I remember when uh, a few years ago i was making a program in kenya about startups and i was really excited to see um all these really in Nairobi particularly, all these really exciting indigenous entrepreneurs uh, coming up with very 
kind of cutting edge technological solutions to the problems that the country was facing, including in health. Do you think that is perhaps the future of solving uh, global health inequalities and, and any other kind of inequality actually is for these kind of technologies to come out of the countries themselves? I think you have to be very careful there. Um, you can have very high-tech solutions to problems, but if the end user can't afford them, then they'll stay on the shelf unused and unloved. The, the relationship between the technology that you've developed and the people who need that technology is, is a very complicated one. And people will reject the, the, the technology for a variety of reasons, not all of them scientific, but nevertheless still important. I remember in Cambodia once visiting a, a household who had been given solar disinfection bottles and when we came back a month later, they were no longer using them. And when I asked why that was, the, the head of the household said that he had heard there was another trial taking place in the area soon where they would get a, a filter. And he thought a filter would be a better technology. So for long-term health reasons, he was rejecting a short-term solution. So that sounds quite sensible, though. <laughs> sounds like he knew what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, he, he he was, but he had no idea of how long it would take before this second trial took place. But in the meantime, he had decided that his children would continue drinking untreated water. So I, I'm not condemning the decision. I'm just saying that's a decision that he arrived at using a set of criteria that I would never have thought of. You have to be very open to the cultural sensitivities here. And this is why most of our teams, when we go working in these kind of environments, okay, we have scientists, but we also have sociologists, we have anthropologists, we have uh, linguists. It's a really interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary team because physicists are great at some things, but maybe communication isn't the best of them, isn't, isn't one of them. So, so uh, you have to have a variety of people on your team. I mean, the issue, I think, one of the issues that comes up uh, from what you're saying, Kevin, is that sometimes communities can become subjects of other people's interest. And sometimes sensibly, maybe sometimes not sensibly, they will try and play that in a way that works for them, which is completely understandable. Because there are lots of big interests involved here. There's not just researchers like yourself, but there's also you know, big um, organisations like the United Nations, there's the WHO, there's multinationals here that all want a piece of this kind of pie, which on the surface has, you know, very noble aims, but actually in the end is also a market. Yeah, there's, there. if you look at the, just in the area of water treatment, if you look at the variety of treatments that are available, uh, and look at the affordability of those treatments. I mean, something like chlorine tablets. Chlorine tablets are very cheap. So they would be seen as a really affordable technology for a large part of the sub-Saharan population. But even though it's a small cost, if it's a huge market, there's a huge profit to be made there. So everybody is looking at, at those ends of the community as a source of income. 
So I, it, it has me worried to a certain extent. Uh, I know a lot of people start off with very altruistic intentions, but once you start getting big business involved, and there are some very big businesses involved in water treatment, well, well then the altruism can get lost in the economics very quickly. And do you think then patients will lose out as a result? Perhaps not in the long run. If if those technologies are proven and they, they're provided to the community at an affordable cost, well, then they won't lose out. I would always take a close look at the motivation of any organization that is operating under those, in those areas. A lot of them do fantastic work, but... For example, if you look around sub-Saharan Africa, I do. Uh, I had a project in southern Uganda around Masaka, and that's a very rural community, and you would see hundreds of water pumps, the, the, the basic India 2 tube well pumps, all around the place. You'd say, oh, there's no problem with water here. About 90% of them don't work, and they don't work because... People have paid to put the pump in, they've, they've sunk the well, they've put the pump in, but no one is looking after the pump. No one has money to maintain the pump. So if you were to just drive through that area, you'd say there's no problem here, whereas in fact they're under huge water stress. So a lot of people gave a lot of money for those wells to be sunk, and are the community benefiting from them? Well, they did for a short period of time, but I'd say unless there's a very active community, water, a water committee in those villages, the likelihood is a lot of those wells won't be working. Ivan, um, Severa is a virtual healthcare company. So am I right in thinking that this is really all about long-term care? So the idea is that people with long-term conditions, treatment is really good management. There isn't just one drug. Like if you get an infection, they give you antibiotics, it clears within one to two weeks. But if if you have hypertension, it very likely you require management over the rest of your life. And so for us, that experience was quite difficult for patients because it required very regular annual, biannual review in person with a doctor. And often the meeting in itself wasn't enough because you you almost needed to record your blood pressure at home, which is a standard. And then we could have results because if you record it in the clinic, often people will have, you know, if anybody, we've all been to the GP practice where we're in a rush or we've been waiting for a long time, we're a bit stressed. If I put a strap on or a cuff on your arm and put your blood pressure, it's most likely going to be high. And so home-based monitoring is the, is the key base. But the problem with that is that people don't have a, a really easy way to do it. There are some notebooks and some guidances, but the generic de facto is people just write it down and then bring it into the clinic. So we wanted to streamline care for these patients by actually having an environment from as soon as your diagnosis suspects of hypertension, you would log into the application, the mobile app. And then from there, everything you needed to record, everything we needed to check up on you would happen in the application for the lifetime with which you had the condition. So you never had to worry about where do I put my results or how do I record? Like if I have any questions, who do I ask? It's all in one application. So we're trying to streamline care for long-term care because 50% of all GP appointments is managing long-term conditions. 70% of the cost in NHS is for managing long-term conditions and the implications of those conditions if we do, don't do things early. And so we were helping to reduce the time and the cost 
of long-term care. And how is that working? Are people engaging with that kind of technology? I mean, current times, because of the pandemic, have accelerated our adoption. So previously, we started a company like just less than a year, basically. And this was before the pandemic had really began here in the UK. And the conversation was more like, oh, interesting, this could be useful, let's have a trial. Post, or rather during pandemic, it's, this is very important. (laughs) And how can we get adopted as soon as possible? Uh, And so the challenge for us is is not kind of convincing people of the need, because the need is so clear, the fact that GPs are now seeing patients less and less face-to-face. It's more just proving out this way of treating people. Because this virtual care approach, I think, will be the number one experience by which we all access healthcare um, globally. And so it's new. Um, And so we need to prove the opportunity, have people engage in it, experience it, find value from it, and vice versa for for doctors. Kevin, when you're looking at um, the kind of technological solutions that people like Ivan are coming up with, we know that in Africa and Asia, smartphone use is booming. So many more people have smartphones. Could those kind of accessible, remote approaches to healthcare be what's needed in environments like that? Absolutely. It, it's, it's one of the big hopes for the future. When I started working in sub-Saharan Africa, I would go out there for maybe a month and I would have an opportunity to, to contact home maybe once or twice via fax. These days, when I go out to the middle of the bush, if I'm accompanied by one of the local Maasai warriors, he'll reach into uh, un- under his cloak and he might take out not one but two mobile phones. And th- th- there's mobile phone coverage almost throughout the entire area of, of Kenya. now, And it's getting better and better in the other sub-Saharan African countries as well. So if that technology is available to the population, then they will use it. It's a question, as always, of the affordability. But there's so much work going into using mobile phone technology to monitor health status, to, to alert to critical incidences that might be uh, developing. So it, it's it's huge and it's got a lot of potential for the future. Ivan, for you then, to hear something like that, at the moment you're working within the UK, but do you see that exciting prospect for going global? Yeah, that's absolutely the intention. So I'm, I'm most excited about the delivery of what we're doing to do large-scale and wide-scale management of long-term conditions in areas in which my parents grew up from. So my parents from Sierra Leone and Freetown, they have one central hospital to care for everyone in the country. Granted, the population is small. But uh, for me, like, I, I hear stories of family members who, you know, we send blood pressure machines because they can't access it because the hospital's too far away. Or they can't see a clinician because the clinic is just too expensive to get to. When, but they have phones because they call my mum every day, <laughs> you know. So I feel like for me, the most exciting opportunity is, is, you know, as Kevin has said, is to kind of take this technology that's become so accessible and to, yeah, leapfrog some of the systems where electronic health records or records of healthcare are not based on a really chunky system that costs thousands and thousands of pounds, but a simple application 
that then at a public health level can be seen to view what's happening across the region. And do you think, um, I mean, one of Kevin's concerns was that it has to be affordable. Is that is that possible? I, I, I 100% believe so. Um, we're, we're delivering, um, so Severo was started on, a, on very few principles, which was about accessibility, affordability, and effectiveness of care. And, and so affordability was a big part. We wouldn't deliver anything that we thought was only meant for a few because healthcare for so long has done that. We have private healthcare, you have Harley Street, you have other things that are available to anyone who is able to afford it, right? And then the NHS came and said, no, it should be free at the point of use. Um, and that's a wonderful ideal. And we think that should be extended to the rest of the world. So I think the reason why we use technology because it is a more affordable way of delivering healthcare. It doesn't require any, any infrastructure beyond what you already have. You can build it once and then become available to millions and millions of people. And if you build the right, kind of support systems, then the technology can support people in the same way an individual can, just at scale and automatically and 24-7. And so there are so many opportunities to reduce the cost of care by increasing the access and also the intelligence of the systems that support people. Yeah, I, I think that trust thing is is crucial here. And I think it's played out, particularly this year, we've seen you know, scientists standing alongside political leaders trying to navigate how to deal with this pandemic. And sometimes they can feel at odds with each other. Do you think so, Kevin? I think another big factor in here is the the trust relationship between the health professionals, the scientists and, and the community. Because in the last 10 to 15 years, I, I feel that relationship has been undermined and has diminished. The scientific community didn't help itself uh, with things like the Wakefield MMR vaccination scandal. The scandal associated with the with Dr. Wakefield's study on the supposed links between MMR vaccination and autism. Now that study has since been hugely discredited. So it has no scientific merit, but it is still used to this day as a justification by many anti-vaccination movements. And the science community hasn't helped itself with things like the uh, environmental pollution caused by large multinationals. So we've created a problem for ourselves where the, where the public has less trust, and then that's been exacerbated by populist governments undermining the, the science and the evidence because it conflicts with the political agenda on things like climate change and environment. So I think we have to be better at communicating with the end users of the health system. Mm, and I think, you know, uh, when we look at anti-vaxxers, and this is something I've looked at in my work, it's not just about a lack of education, because a lot of anti-vaxxers, especially in the West, tend to be quite well-educated middle-class mums who are genuinely concerned about their children but have gone, you know, disappeared down an internet rabbit hole of misinformation and pseudoscience sometimes. Um, but it's also... It's very much about narratives, the narratives that we build around scientific ideas and how we convey them to the public. Um, Kevin, you know, what can we do to change narratives that will help people trust what scientists tell us and, and have more faith in, for example, vaccination? It is a huge issue. And in many ways, the, the scientists are very poorly equipped 
to do that job well, because very few of us get any kind of training in science communication or, or, or media training. And our basic scientific ethos is we will always have a level of doubt. We have to be open to the possibility that our hypothesis will not be proven. And we find ourselves arguing with people who are convinced that vaccines are dangerous and they they're blessed with the absolute certainty and have no doubts whereas we are trained to have doubts so i think science communication in many senses is as important to science graduates as learning the electromagnetic spectrum for physicists or or learning redox reactions for chemists so i think that's something that the universities should think about more I just want to wrap up now and ask you both a very simple question, which is, well, it feels simple on the surface, but if you had a magic wand and you could do one thing today in global healthcare or in the healthcare systems in which you work, what would that one thing be? So I'll start with you, Kevin. Oh, that's a huge, <laughs> that's a huge question. Uh, well, like I said, I, I think we've got to be better at transmitting and communicating the message to the people who who would benefit most from it. I think unless you have a government that is open to scientific evidence, you'll always be struggling. And that's a problem for for many advanced countries around the world. I mean, some countries are blessed with scientifically trained uh, leaders. Germany has Angela Merkel, who, who was a physicist. Ireland has, well, up until recently, we had Leo Varadkar, who was a a doctor. So if you have people in leadership roles who believe the science, I think it's easier. If, if, on the other hand, you have people who think they've heard quite enough from experts, I think then that's going to be a lot more difficult. And what about you, Ivan? For me, I would say better guidance on food and fitness. Because I think if if we can create more environments generally in society that are free to access, where people can access the food that they want in a given like again i'm very radical in these thinking but in a given thought process but also have the the opportunity to train and and be fit in those terms i feel like we can change a lot of the outcomes for people Looking Glass is a chalk and blade production for the institute of physics the producer is fatuma keira the executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music by Alex Portfelix. Sound mix by Nicola Rofast. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless. <laughs>